Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome back to Live Longer, the podcast, as we continue our first series on the art of healthy longevity. Now, this evening, I've got a really wonderful friend, colleague, mentor who I'm talking to tonight. He's originally from Iran and he trained in medicine at Bristol University. He's not just any doctor, he's um, an ophthalmologist and he's an entrepreneur and he's really changing the landscape of electronic patient records in the field of ophthalmology and has recently been awarded funding for his AI cognitive project, which he'll tell us about. But one of the reasons I'm really interested in interviewing him is, is his visual arts and his photography talent. And he is a prize winning photographer at the age of 17, he won a prize at the Royal Photographic Society for one of his pictures. And he's been gracing the walls of his hospital, which he's recently arranged a rebuild with all these wonderful photographs to make the environment more comfortable for his patients and improve the experience. This was recently, um, in the last couple of years, opened by the Countess of Wessex, Sophie. And he's also a patient and he's going to tell us a little bit about his own health journeys. And then putting all that together, he combines a really deep understanding of mathematics, science, how we can get order from chaos and man's desire for synchrony and harmony as a way to healthier, longer life. He's currently a consultant ophthalmologist at the University Hospital of Sussex, um, which was recently divided into East and West, and he leads up the Western components of this. So join me in welcoming Mr. Masood Taimuri. Masood, you're very welcome. Thank you, Mary. Thank you for inviting me to this uh, wonderful idea. That's a pleasure. And, you know, we've had a number of fascinating discussions and, you know, we've we've had dinner together chatting. And um, every time I speak with you, I learn more and more. Thank but you. one of the things, yeah, no, it's a fascinating discussion. And I, I think my listeners are going to be really, really interested in everything you've got to say tonight. But I wanted to bring you back to the early days. Um, I mentioned briefly that you grew up in Iran and you kindly mentioned to me how one of your early teachers was really an excellent science teacher and and probably instilled in you a love for science combined with your photography. Could I take you back to those early days? Because I'm really interested to explore your journey from that young boy in Iran to the leader of your department in Western Sussex now and, and how that whole growth happened. So so let's go back to Iran as we start this journey tonight. Indeed. Um, I mean, I was born uh, 2nd of July, 61, to a, a lovely, lovely family who education for them was of utmost importance. Although my dad and my mom had uh, up to a sort of a six-year education in Iran because at the time where we lived was far away from secondary school, therefore, at their time, really only the primary six-level school was available. And so they uh, really studied at that age. And their dream was for the children to, of course, to have better education. They sent me to a very nice school not far from where we live. Um, but this school was, uh, although quite small, I had fantastic science teacher and quite a lot of emphasis on mathematics as well as Poetry. I mean, I- Iran, of course, is a hotbed of uh, civilization, and all people in Iran really value education extremely highly. And it was uh, fortunate that, you know, at the age of 11, we had a teacher who taught me photography. 
So I learned to print uh, black and white pictures in a, in a contact manner. And I was just absolutely fascinated by this uh, printing process. So the science teacher was a chap called Hossein Kord, and he was uh, basically a lefty. He was a Marxist, uh, Leninist. And he really thought a couple of us, he not only wanted to indoctrinate us in his, to, with his politics, but he was very keen for us to be extremely good scientists. And as part of the experiments, he was talking about evaporation, boiling point of water, and how the, the kinetic energy reaches a, a threshold whereby you get water vapor. And the question was, uh, I ask, is that why does the water vapor erratically moves and uh, uh, there doesn't seem to be any pattern to it? And he just basically said, I think there must be the, the window open or, or something like that. And this water vapor question is something that has been nagging me forever. And then uh, when I kept uh, looking at clouds and evaporation when I was cooking, and I noticed that it's actually got the pattern, it's got a shape, it's got pattern, and kinetic energy of the molecules at the surface seems to basically shift uh, the water molecules in a almost uh, tree-like fashion. And this, then they lift, and then another, uh, a bit like lightning, you get lightning of well, water molecules at the surface that reach the threshold and they lift and, and, and again and again. And then if you then imagine an ocean being a big kettle, so we've got this kettle water vapor lifting up and uh, gradually with my better understanding of science, uh, uh, laws of thermodynamics, physics, then I said, wow, the clouds have got shaped. So I started sort of photographing clouds uh, from then on. I've been fascinated by them. And this was when you were in school, you were photographing clouds, Masood? Yeah, even at, at school, indeed. Uh, and then this just something became uh, a feature of uh, my sort of thought process. And then you go through rigors of life, you see economic cycles, you see patterns of behavior, you see things that you like, you don't like, and you see there is pattern to everything. And then that really was the start of my thinking process uh, about um, uh, mathematics of creation and also why things have form, why things have shape. So you had a natural curiosity, though this teacher fostered a natural curiosity in you and a thirst for knowledge. Absolutely. I think the thing, thing is, I think, you know, some, some nature and nurture, I think, Indeed, I think I was fortunate to be learn photography at the same time that this question that came up. And then it just became one of those things that you just go through life and you say, well, why did that happen? And the same thing happened really with poetry. I mean, I learned to recite a lot of poetry. and it, it Still, that's the practice in Iran. Most even a poetry is very much alive in uh, Persian speaking, in particularly Iran. And that's because the Persian language hasn't changed in the last thousand years. And poetry is all, it was used throughout the centuries as a way of protest, as a way of questioning uh, man's, uh, for their being, and also questioning 
existence of God, questioning the why the emperor is so cruel, why the Shah is so cruel. And so the poetry is also an element of this uh, whole upbringing that I think the, 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 the three really just were very fortunate to be in that particular school. Well, it's interesting that you have poetry and photography because one of the most interesting gentlemen that I interviewed in the last few months was Professor Adrian Furnham. And he quoted some literature on the longevity of artists themselves. Now, interestingly, poets have a shorter lifespan of all the artistic disciplines compared to photographers who've got the longest. Because in photography, you, particularly if you're a portrait photographer, you'll develop a relationship even behind the lens, whereas poetry is quite a lonely solace. But you're combining both. Now, that, that's actually fascinating to have those two disciplines, one counterbalancing the other in terms of the positive and negative longevity. So hopefully <laughs> that will create a equilibrium so I have at least a reasonable lifespan. <laughs> yeah, this is the whole point, the art of healthy longevity. But look, we'll come back to that in a minute because there's some really interesting connections between later on in your career. So I want to come back to that. But you moved from Iran and how did that arise that you moved from Iran to the UK? Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. I was uh, very politicized. I was basically very, uh, I came, my family were extremely sort of charitable, sort of uh, middle class artisan and very much against oppression. My dad used to often support um, families of political prisoners during the Shah's regime. And we often, sometimes, you know, we had an orchard where sometimes we had quite senior sort of uh, opposition leaders hiding in our, in our orchard away from the Secret Service. We've been politicized uh, during the, the, the peaks of Shah's um, oppression. Uh, it was just massively supported by, unfortunately, the US of A at the time. And then uh, the teachers I had, one, one was communist uh, or Marxist-Leninist, and the other extreme was uh, one who currently is one of the opposition leaders in Iran. His name is Mehdi Karoubi, and he was very much in the very progressive Islamic uh, way of society um, and um, and so we were really two extremes, one atheism, one a very progressive, enlightened Islam that were trying to indoctrinate us. And then uh, Karubi was arrested by Shah's uh, secret service uh, on and off. Uh, so we didn't really see sometimes much of him at school. And the Hossein court, unfortunately, he, we never saw him again. He was executed uh, in, in Iran. And that really, you know, profoundly, I think, depressed me because I really had a real admiration the way he was trying to teach us science and have an understanding of us, not only self, also society. And Mehdi Karubi was, he was uh, basically the, the teacher of uh, literature and ethics. Uh, so he was, he was also extremely progressive. And his progressive attitude towards civil society that's now got into trouble in post-revolutionary Iran, and he was actually one of the, you know, the important figures in the revolution. So my then basically we were being chased by the, we were under basically um, 
noticed by the Shah's secret service of work. And then uh, my parents said, you know, this is ridiculous. <laughs> you know, you, we keep telling you not to get too politicized at such a young age. And then the opportunity came for me to come to Britain to study. My next door neighbor was in Bristol. And my dad said, you know, do you want to go on a study abroad? And, you know, and I said, what a great idea. And my English was very good. So I came in 1976 uh, at the age of 15 to Bristol and studied uh, basically uh, English as a foreign language and uh, lived with a British family and then got a place to do O and A levels in Ball City College, which is basically not a center of excellence by any means for sciences. But luckily, my foundation was so good in in Iran that I did my O-levels in a year and the A-levels with really, really good results. And by this time, the Iranian revolution had come to, to sort of being and I was planning to study chemical engineering and one of my best, best friends was one of the early, what you call martyrs or killed or whatever in the revolution. And then I said, well, you know, why don't they do medicine? And I applied for medicine. I, I got rejected. And then I said, well, I'll take a year out, do photography, you know, and which I did. I was doing wedding photography, portrait photography to make ends meet. And then um, I, this was really, the, again, an interesting thing happened. I got re-rejected from all the universities. And I was doing uh, uh, some freelance photography outside the American embassy. There was a protest by the Iranian students in London against the brutality of the, some of the unfortunate uh, American law force uh, officers uh, in the in U.S., and then uh, I just didn't realize suddenly, bang, I got, got hit in the head. The next thing I know, I was in Paddington Green uh, Police Station with 10, 15 other people in one cell. I mean, it just really just was unbelievable. We were all in one cell. And on purpose, they turned off the ventilation. We were all very sick in this, this cell. And then, then they opened the cell and said, guys, you know, what's your name? You know, and I said, well, you know, why have you, me as a photographer, why am I here? And they said, oh, you know, you punished and kicked, <laughs> kicked the policeman. I was like, what are you talking about? And then I said, where's my camera? I said, you know, what camera, what, what equipment? And I said, I won't give you my name if you don't give me my camera and equipment. And I didn't. <laughs> you loved your camera even then. <laughs> exactly. So I ended up, so they said, well, because it's illegal, you've got to go to prison. So I basically ended up going to Brixton prison. I can't really remember how long it was there. Definitely not years, but it, was, it wasn't days. It was, it was a couple of weeks at least. Well, this was a far cry from medical school, Masood. <laughs> How did you get out of prison? Did you break free? Yeah. No. <laughs> Not enough time. No, no, it's just I was called up to the Old Bailey in front of a very compassionate judge. And he said, hey, young man, you know, can you tell us your story? And, and I said, like, George, you know, I just, uh, I love photography. And I was, you know, I had lots of lovely equipment. 
And then suddenly I know I've ended up in this mess. He said, uh, basically, tell on the policeman. He said, I just do not believe you two. And this young man is innocent and he's free with no charge. And I said, uh, and he said, what's your name? I said, I won't give you my name unless I have the cameras. So he said, <laughs> he said, give me your name. I wish make sure your um, your camera and the rest uh, will be with you within a couple of hours. And indeed, they brought the cameras and and the equipment really badly damaged uh, by the by the police, unfortunately. So you got out and with then, no record. Did he absolve you your sins? Yes, absolutely no record. Yeah, indeed, uh, is no record. Um, and I think he, I, I even appeared as really sh- uh, half a paragraph in front of the the, the Guardian or one of the national newspapers saying that Master Tamiri, blah blah blah, you know, protesting a student released with no charge or something. I call it be nice to get all of that little paragraph for it. Uh, That's good. And then you had another go at trying to get into medical school after that, didn't you? You borrowed a friend's suit, didn't you? That's right. I borrowed a friend's suit. And I said, but this is ridiculous. I have no place in med school. And then uh, I just turned up to, uh, you know, because I tried obviously the normal route of applications and so forth. And the admin people who never answered, I said, you know what, I'm going to just use my... uh, Persian charm <laughs> to, to the to the dean uh, of uh, medical school, and I went to the just got on the train from Bath to to Bristol, and went to a chap called Bob Cole, and he wasn't there. He said, "You'll find him round the corner. He's smoking." So I went there. <laughs> he was chain smoking. And I said, uh, hello. He said, who are you? I said, um, you know, so-and-so. And I said, what can I do for you, young man? I said, well, look, I've got a reasonably good A-level results and I'm sporty, uh, quite innovative, do this and that. He said, what are you doing on Monday? I said, nothing. He said, well, you're starting medical school. And that wow. really was, oh, yeah, yeah, that honestly the case. I mean, he just, he was so compassionate that. So I'd really very <laughs> compassionate judge. Well, people obviously liked you, Masood, then, and they <laughs> they like you now. And then you went on and you trained in, you did a lot of subspecialty training with neurosurgery, ophthalmology, which took you then to become a consultant in um, down in Sussex. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I obviously graduated from Bristol in 86. Um, I uh, did the, the year half job then. Then I did uh, neurosurgery, uh, but what, sorry, what the, go back a little bit. That during medical school, unfortunately, the first year, I developed severe ankylosing spondylitis to the extent that I couldn't walk. And I was admitted to the hospital under a very prominent rheumatologist, which I'm sure you, you, you know, uh, Paul Dieppe. Mm. And he, you know, treated me with the, the medication as they have it, then uh, with ACTH and the rest. And Paul was really nice. He said, "Look, this is really bad arthritis, and we can't switch it off. You have to have some radiotherapy, and maybe you should take a couple of years off." I said, "Look, you know, um, you know, it's been so hard to get to medical school. There's no, <laughs> no way 
I'm going to take a few years off. Well, for the benefit of our listeners, I think I should interject and just explain that ankylosing spondylitis is a condition that younger people get that leads to stiffening and straightening of the spine and it can lead to progressive newborn formation and loss of function. So as a medical student to get this, when you're sitting around studying, it must have been really, really hard to get up and, and really cope. And the pain must have been intense, Masood. Yeah, it was just unbelievable. I think the thing, I think it was that I was exceedingly sporty. I mean, I was almost like a champion weightlifter, and I was just in the gym all the time doing things. And this was such a, such a basically knock in my lifestyle. And I was living alone. You know, I was living in a one bed bedroom bed set in Hanbury Road in in Bristol. Uh, with no family because all the family were in Iran. The revolution had taken place. There was a lot of turmoil. Nobody could travel from Iran to 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 Britain. The, the, they couldn't really get a visa. So it was really a, a, a lonely sort of existence. And maybe that's why the poetry, I think, came quite handy. I think that's when I started writing more poetry. I mean, the poetry I started writing at the age of, I think, 14, 15, but I think then I started writing a bit more poetry mm. uh, in the dark days of pain and loneliness and uh, the British winter <laughs> in Bristol. And did you keep doing photography during medical school? Absolutely. I mean, I was, I mean, I, again, I just um, could not believe my luck. I didn't want to stay in halls of residence. The first year of medical school, I was in, lived in Bath because I absolutely loved Bath, um, uh, as you do. Mm-hmm. And then, I do. And then, 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 then uh, what happened is that, yeah, I said, I'm not going to go to halls of residence. These medical students are just dead boring. They all want to study. So I went to found a, a bed sit in, in, a, a, in Clifton, which is a really beautiful part of um, Bristol. And uh, it was like a studio flat, you know, a kitchenette, uh, a couple of beds that folded into the walls to create room. And I made that into a photographic studio and I was teaching basically printing, developing. I had all the equipment. I had the enlarger, printer, dryer. And quite luckily, opposite bedsit was a chap called James Grace. He's a very, very unbelievably brilliant oil painter with uh, eye disease. He had a blind in one eye from keratoconus and he was uh, losing his sight on the other side. And James and I became a fantastic friend. And James had a classic oil painting training by a very prominent painter known as Pietro Anagoni, who did one of the Queen's best portraits. Uh, he trained in James had trained in Florence, so he actually taught me about perspective, about basically Rembrandt, about the masters. I used to watch him mix uh, the egg yolk with various um, paint pigments to create the paint. I was absolutely fascinated. Then I really did, learned a little bit of did a couple of I learned a little bit of painting um, as well, just just for fun. I mean, it wasn't anything amazing but it was just really quite relaxing and then uh, I helped James uh, do you know his uh, exhibitions used to do the photographic exhibit photo photograph for his brochures and the rest 
So by osmosis, I learned sort of some some from the old masters that you know, you know that's how, you know, that it became very handy actually for portrait photography, uh, learning from James. Yes, because you mentioned Rembrandt there, and he was very famous for making the eyes the focus of his work, wasn't he? And, and uh, how ironical that you end up an eye surgeon. <laughs> Absolutely, and that's really. Uh, which, you know, hopefully we'll discuss it. I think that's how the brain works. I think when you meet people or greet people, the thing that brain looks for is symmetry, beauty of eyes and the mid-face and really ignores a lot of the other things. Then that's the first impression that we have of people. So that's what social contact, eye contact. This is our brain just designed to make that. That eye contact, that's why it's so important in portrait photography and also in portrait painting. And in life, to try and seek harmony, you were explaining to me, because out of chaos comes harmony. And maybe this is a good time for you to explain about the different parts of the brain and how one tries to seek purpose and the other seeks order, because that will lead us into discussing your your work and, and what inspires you to do fantastic things for the patients. Absolutely. Of course, the uh, I mean, obviously, uh, in the higher sort of uh, primates like us, we have a primitive uh, cortex, the allocortex, and we've got the, the wonderful neocortex. The allocortex and, of course, is amygdala and hippocampus are our reasoning, our deep feelings, our basically our GPS. It's the bit that navigates us, gives us basically direction in life. But that can't verbalize. So we use the new cortex to verbalize our deep emotion. And that's where seeking for God, seeking for existence, seeking for various things comes really from allocortex. And the allocortex is very fascinating because I think a lot of its function is, again, uh, genetic nature. And I'm, and I'm sure there is influence of nurture. We know nurture has a fantastic um, influence, of course, on the plasticity of the brain. As an eye surgeon, neurosurgeon, and I've done quite a lot of on cognition and, um, and so forth. I'm not a trained psychologist or psychiatrist, but what we see in children is that essentially their vision, visual cortex is brilliantly plastic up to the age of seven and eight. So if a child has got a lazy eye, from uh, either to have a turning of the eye, which is called the squid, or the prescription, the glasses is so uh, unequal, the eye that is getting the blurred vision or the double vision automatically switches off. And this switching off is done by the brain. There is no change in the neuroanatomy of whether, if you do look at the MRI or the functional MRI between the two circuitry of the eyes. But the brain just switches off the information from one side of the uh, one eye and just uses the information from the other. And from time to time, depending on the type of uh, laziness of the eye, it can switch on and off without one realizing. And then I then have noticed the same thing, say, my children and my daughter is 27, 28 now, and I can see that her behavior really is exactly the same as when she was seven and eight, what she likes in terms of range of food, sour, she loves the sourness uh, and so forth. So I've just come to the conclusion that the plasticity of the brain really tears off by the age of seven and eight. And a lot of our moral or the way we look at the world, how we, 
we basically see our place uh, in the, both for self and society is really formed at a very, very young age. Is this why they say, give me a child of seven and I'll show you the man or the woman? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think thereafter is really just the decoration. I think the, the structure of who we are is really, really um, basically starts at that very age. Then what about our emotions and, and our resilience? Now, for instance, you're a very resilient person coming here from Iran, living by yourself, not giving up, wanting to get into medical school, surviving prison, etc. And being as successful as you are, you must, do you think that resilience was built before the age of seven for you? Yeah, I think so. I think definitely, I mean, I had obviously difficulties that I faced in Iran I just had this thirst for, always thirst for knowledge and learning. And that was the what was um, helping me to be able to perhaps release more endorphins and not even sense the, the physical pain of uh, ankylosing spondylitis, which was really, really severe. So I got through the medical school, really at sometimes with one or two sticks in walking in the corridors and and doing various, various things. Yeah, that resilience, I think, is partly, again, unfortunately, some of it is genetic, I think. And then the environment also has a massive uh, factor in making you a more resilient person. Mm, absolutely. And also, you know, coping then with challenges later like stress at work. Now, we had an interesting discussion where you said that you did feel at one point depressed, but then you related that mathematically to maybe being out of sync in terms of what you were seeking in terms of your purpose in life versus colleagues around you. Absolutely. I think one thing that basically I became a uh, did medicine really just because to help humanity i mean that's you know i because of the uh, remember i had a very severe political exposure to sort of both uh, left and sort of uh, progressive islam which is very much is a social democratic the progressive islam is very much social democratic uh, a concept of a person in a society and that really you are you work for the many and not the few and your your purpose your your is really to help society. Of course, you have to help yourself so that you're healthy, you've got reasonable income, but your ultimate aim is really to help other people around you and mankind. And that's something that is, I've found, of course, my wife is British, my children are, of course, uh, mixed mixed uh, Persian and Anglo-Persian. And their children also notice that, of course, we go to Iran, we come here, one thing that is very, of course, easy to see is that it's the, the, the pure Persian culture is very much about giving. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, enjoyment about giving. And that's something that is very alien to some friends and colleagues in, 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 the, in the West that I've come across both in Europe and also in America where I work. Except for in Ireland, I'd have to say Ireland is very similar. <laughs> I'm joking and jesting, but I'm serious. We have a very similar culture. You know, I totally agree. I think <laughs> you know, we went for a football match, Iran versus um, Ireland for um, basically World Cup playoffs. And then the, one of the local headlines, the Dublin uh, newspaper was the, the Irish have 
found the long lost brothers. <laughs> because, oh, I love it. Because, because they were just so warm and the Iranians were so warm backwards. And then, and it was quite, quite, it, it is absolutely true. I mean, some of the, the most, the closest friends I have in ophthalmology, uh, they've got basically Irish or a Scottish root. I think they, they, they do have a different sort of outlook to life. And I think, again, it goes back to nature and nurture that we were, we were talking about earlier. But jokes aside, you do bring that warmth with you to, you know, the experience that you're trying to give your patients. And I think combined with this sense of purpose you've outlined, you're now using your art, which is your talent, combining it with your purpose and your personality to give patients a better experience. Will you tell us a little bit about the hospital, um, the, well, the ophthalmology department that you've arranged and the photographic exhibition? And we have pictures up on our website of this, which is quite fascinating, I have to say. Yeah, I think basically, I, you know, as part of my fellowship, uh, I did. I went to America. I had my. I spent some time at uh, Harvard Medical School Children's Hospital as a medical student, and of course, I was fascinated uh, by by ophthalmology. Then uh, I had my American exams. Uh, then the opportunity arose. Um, I was accepted to do a fellowship at the Bascom Palmer Eye Institute in Miami, Florida, which is. For those in the north, it's really is the premier, premier eye unit in the world. Not in terms of innovation and in terms of being an unbelievable community. Bascom Palmer has been, was founded in the 1960s in the Miami swamps by a couple, four or five really fantastic people who really were very much there to help society because at then the Florida was, you know, mosquito infested and not the, the most desirable place to live. But their, their basically ethos uh, or the ethics very much uh, was similar to mine is that, you know, you have to help. with this. And I worked with some of these very prominent people who have unfortunately passed away. And then there, I did my fellowship in neuroophthalmology, which is a sort of esoteric branch of um, ophthalmology, neurology, neurosurgery. And it was absolutely fascinating, you know, the, the, the work I did there. And I was, you know, was offered to stay and to stay in America. But because of, you know, again, going back to the politics, I had this sort of fundamental disagreement with, with American sort of politics and, and, and the way things are run. And uh, then I came back to U, 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 UK. I went to Moorfields, which is obviously the, the, the most brilliant uh, center of excellence in ophthalmology. But I wasn't happy. I, you know, I was just so uh, low in the pecking order as a senior registrar and a fellow. And it wasn't a really a place for me at the time to, to innovate. And the opportunity came uh, in that... Uh, he either was going back to U.S. or going to Iran. And my wife is from the south coast by the sea and said, you know, why don't we go find a place on the coast? And somebody recommended basically coming to Worthing and Chichester. I'd never heard of the, these places before. <laughs> and and I, But there was opportunity. It was a very, you know, uh, uh, rundown area with a very high elderly population high incidence of um, eye disorders. And I think, you know what, I could probably make a, a difference uh, coming here. 
And that's what I did. I came here, concentrated on education, improved the education really to a very high standard by fundraising and, and creating a fantastic curriculum. And then, uh, and I always kept going on and on that's how this area is underserved for ophthalmology. We had five ophthalmologists for a population of basically five to 600,000, which is about 30 times less than US, about 10 to 15 times less than France and Germany. And I kept uh, basically badgering on so that we need to have a, a, an improved service. And then the opportunity came, you know, uh, with in the form of um, uh, we had a, I must actually mention, we had a, the most incredible chief executive appointed with the name of Dame Marianne Griffiths. She obviously obtained her damehood a couple of years ago for her services to the NHS. And she's an unbelievable visionary. And she basically, again, uh, she synced, you know, mentally she synced with me and believed what my vision is and what I'm trying to do for basically the area. And she basically uh, asked me to improve the eye service in Chichester, which I did, and I raised about 750,000 pounds. And I contacted Bascom Palmer, the architects, and I used their architectural drawing to design the cubicles, examination cubicle for ophthalmology. And this was really, really, very successful. And then the, the, a couple of years later, the opportunity came to do the same thing in uh, the Southlands Hospital, which was a brand new eye department. And um, so when I was sitting with the architect um, to design it from a company called Crowder Architects, I said, you know what, in, in the back of my mind, I always didn't tell the architect, let's design it as an art gallery and, and fit our patient and operate it. That indeed, that's my vision. That's how I, I thought about it. So I basically uh, make sure the walls are wide. We have very high ceilings and the rest and the rest. So the, the atrium essentially is a beautiful, you know, art gallery. I mean, it could be anywhere really. It could be in Tate Modern or it could be in the National Portrait Gallery. It's at absolutely the highest standard. So then I raised money for the photographs. Of course, I give all the photographs uh, no cost to to my own institution and other institution. If they of your photographs, this is you. You put your photographs into it, Masood. No, no. Yeah, I asked. I sent an email to all the colleagues if they want to uh, to, to give. But the problem is to to have a, a meter by one meter photograph, you can't use an iPhone uh, picture or a, it has to have a very high resolution. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't have that sort of equipment. So we we, we, we accept uh, one person that I'll, I'll discuss if you want to, that gave, we had some photographs from. So essentially, yes, I mean, it's the, the, this ended up to be, to be my, my, my photographs of in the theme of uh, mathematics of creation that we will obviously talk about. Yes, and you have a, a very famous photographer, don't you, a lady from the 50s in That's Paris? Right. That's Tell right. Tell me about that, her. Yeah, I think Marilyn Stafford. Uh, so essentially, when we opened uh, Southlands in uh, June of 2017, we, we only had enough money for six photographs So uh, from the charity. And so we did the six uh, pictures 
And right at the beginning, I made the theme, the mathematics of creation or chaos of creation. And then uh, Marilyn is an unbelievably uh, compassionate um, lady, came to me as a patient and she's um, with a lovely American accent. You know, she, I examined her, her eyes and so forth. I said, who's taking those photos? I said, you know, um, I have. Then uh, not knowing that she's so famous, her daughter said, my mom is also a photographer. She's somebody in, in her 90s. And I said, I'm sorry, I, I don't know, you know. And then I said, well, have a look at the website. They have a look, so wow, you know. The first person she photographed was Albert Einstein hmm. in the 1950s. And then she went on to photograph uh, Gandhi and you know, many, many other eminent people. And I highly recommend to uh, to friends and colleagues listening to this, gumalinstaffordphotography.com. Uh, it is unbelievable. Hmm. And then what she was doing, she was doing uh, work for the Observer and the Guardian, uh, the Algerian uh, war, uh, post-colonial era, which was based in, in Paris. And to supplement her income, she was doing some fashion photography. And she did some unbelievable work uh, uh, to the fashion area. And then she also, she also photographed uh, very famous uh, people in, in, in France. And then uh, she said, look, you know, if there's anything I can do uh, for you, I'll, I'll be delighted. I said, look, uh, we became friends and we, you know, they came to my house, I went to their house. It was over a period of a year, 18 months then. Indeed, she gave me the negative, the original negatives of her photographs uh, uh, from Paris fashion shoot. And I chose four or five of them to to enlarge, digitize and enlarge over a meter Mm. uh, for display. So there's an area that we've assigned to Marilyn. It's called Marilyn Square in the eye clinic. And uh, and it's been it's been it's been wonderful to, to, to do that. I'm sure this greatly enhances the patient experience because as anybody knows, when you go, particularly for your eye outpatient, I worked in St. Thomas's for a long time with another amazing eye institute, but our patients would wait for hours pre-COVID to see us. So having beautiful things on the walls to look at must make that experience so much better. So you really are in touch with your patient's needs there, Masood, I would say. Very point on. Thank you. So... We've, we've had a really interesting discussion. You've taken us from, you know, Iran in the 70s to Bristol, to medical school, your journey as a photographer, poet, your understanding of the mathematics of science and creation, and then also human emotion and, and the sense of purpose, your, how you dealt with your own illness and how you've basically, with great resilience, now giving back. You're giving back to the community that you serve in an amazing way. And this journey, for those of you who are interested in listening further, can be continued by looking at the beautiful website that um, Masood is creating called Sophie. And interestingly, as we finish, it's worth mentioning that, that of course, Sophie, Countess of Wessex, opened your your um, eye department, didn't she, Masood? Absolutely. She, she's very knowledgeable lady. I think she's got a degree in biochemistry and I think she understands Persian culture. So when I mentioned that uh, basically the, the name of the gallery that we have is called 
Sufi, is that, does that mean that it's to do with Sufism? She basically said, yes, it is to do with Sufism. And then that was a wonderful. And I gave her a collection of my poems uh, that she absolutely uh, enjoyed to have. And illuminated, calligraphed uh, one of my poets that I think uh, I gave you one as well, as a present for seeing me. You did indeed, for the creativity. Yes, and I have it in my office. I'm looking at it now, Masood, and, <laughs> and it has stimulated me into the... This is one of my creative ventures, and, and I just love it, uh, talking to fascinating people like you. But, you know, it's not that you're just fascinating, but, you know, the compassion and your drive to do good for mankind and to enable other people to live longer, healthier lives is very inspiring. And I want to thank you so much for coming on the show this evening. I'm really grateful to you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome, Masood. And thank you to all my listeners. If you want to have a little look on our website, we'll have some of the stunning photographs from Masood's display, both in the hospital and his personal collection, which I think are really, really inspiring. And if you want to give any feedback, please feel free to get in touch at hello at Live Longer, the podcast. And join us next week when we have another exciting photographer, another colleague who'll be joining me, who's um, a hip and knee surgeon and has spent a lot of her life taking Taking photographs. So that will be very exciting. Sarah Moorhead Alwood. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.